0: We continue this morning our series in Luke's Gospel, and we are now in the sixth chapter, coming to the end of Luke's shorter version of the Sermon on the Mount. Luke chapter 6, beginning with verse 43. You will remember last time that the Lord Jesus instructed his disciples about this issue of judgmentalness and he said how can you say to your brother brother let me take out the speck that is in your eye when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye now we come to verse 43 will you pray with me our father we are so grateful for your word and we thank you for freeing us from current prejudices in culture, and in churches that would deny your word, and for opening our intellect and wills to the freedom of submission to your divine authority in your holy word, the Bible. And so now we turn to this word, and we pray that as your people, we would, we would submit ourselves completely to your authority. And that the Holy Spirit would enable us to live out of the fullness of what we hear and learn from this text this morning. And that we would see Jesus on this and every page of Holy Scripture. But we also pray for those who may be among us today who are strangers to grace, who do not know Christ. We know that holiness both repels and attracts. But you can use this service of worship in order to bring conviction to the hearts of that one that needs it, so that at least within his soul, he says, I bow down before you. God is in this place. I need the Savior. We ask for that and pray it in the name of Jesus Christ, the head and king of his church. Amen. Will you take your copy of God's Word, standing together, Luke chapter 6, beginning with verse 43. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood arose, the stream broke against that house. And could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell. And the ruin of that house was great. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. Not everyone who thinks that he will be saved will be saved. Not all profession of salvation is possession of salvation. You can fool others, and you certainly may deceive yourself, but you cannot fool the judge whose eye searches the heart. The Lord Jesus in the prior section has said that we should remove the beam in our own eye before attempting to help someone else with his life. But sometimes the beam is so significant it keeps a lost person from seeing that he even is lost. Indeed, the scriptures teach that outside of Christ we are blind, yea, even dead in our trespasses and sins. So we need the gospel. Now as we come to this section of scripture, and it is a hard saying of our Lord, the first thing that we see in the text is two trees and fruit contrasted. Two trees that bear different fruit. What is fruit? The way in which we act, the way in which we speak that shows what is in the heart, that is fruit. Attitudes, actions, what one might teach or say in any given circumstance. The second part of verse 45 says, for out of the abundance of the heart his mouth speaketh. Each tree yields its own fruit, not that of another kind of tree. From thorn bushes, one does not gather figs. From a bramble bush, one does not gather grapes. And the same is true of the human heart. Look at verse 45. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. And so Jesus in this text actually uses the Greek word thesaurus, that means treasure box. Out of the abundance of the treasure box of your heart, you will show what's there by how you speak and how you act. What we cherish, what we long for, what we we hold to, what we worship will, in one way or another, come out of the treasure box of the heart and will be displayed. From the overflow in our hearts, our mouths speak. The overflow of the heart must sometimes burst its banks into our speech, either in praise to God or in cursing of Him. So what does your speech reveal about your heart? What does the propensity of your life show about the treasure box of your heart? In Matthew 12, 36, the Lord Jesus says, I tell you on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you shall be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. And so, if your heart is filled with Christ, with faith in him, with hope, and with love, it will show by speech and actions. You will be vitally interested in the things of God, in his word, worship, and people. You will speak, as a norm, edifying words. You will pray and desire those things that are in accord with God's nature because you have a regenerated heart. But if your heart is filled with sin and it is filled with self, you may fake interest in the Lord, but it will be betrayed sooner or later by speech and actions that are contrary to God's attributes and nature. We're speaking here of a norm. No believer is fully sanctified in this life, but there's something real and vital and different about the believer from the unbeliever. Regeneration, the new birth, breaks humanity in two. There are only two kinds of people, ultimately, called trees here, that bear fruit. There are those who are regenerated and those who are not, those who are born again, those who are not, those who know God through Christ, who sacrificed himself on the cross and rose from the dead, and those who are not. There are those who know the Lord and those who do not know the Lord, and only those two kinds of people in the world. And if you think that you may know the Lord and it makes no difference in your life, then you are self-deceived. No one has ever come to faith in Jesus Christ through the work of the Holy Spirit and been unchanged by it. Now, the Lord Jesus expounds more on these two different approaches to life by changing the metaphor, and he speaks of two buildings and two foundations. So that's the second thing, two buildings and two foundations contrasted. In verse 46, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I tell you? These are false disciples. You see, these would be professing Christians. These would be today people who are in the context of the church. These are the people who sing the hymns and who read the scriptures, and they say, Lord, Lord. They recognize Jesus as Jehovah. They acknowledge his deity. They profess his authority over them, at least on one level. They say, Lord, Lord, but in their hearts, and the heart is the real issue, their hearts are not honest. For the believer, more and more, doing the Lord's will is the thing that matters most. The one who hears Christ's word and does it is like Well, look at verses 47 and 48 again. Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood arose, the stream broke against the house and could not shake it because it had been well built. The first builder then is careful indeed. He builds his house on a plan. He builds with foresight. The rainy seasons, he, know, he knows, will come, and he needs a house that is well built and prepared for it. He wants to be prepared. And those who hear and obey the Lord build their houses on a deep, solid foundation. Paul the Apostle tells us in 1 Corinthians 3 that no other foundation can be laid than that which is laid, which is Christ Jesus, and the wise person builds on that foundation. The floods and the winds then came. They dashed upon the house, and they were furious. But the foundation, well laid, was not swept away. When the winds die down and the floods receive, this man's house is there, solid and immovable, because he is built on a solid, immovable foundation. It all has to do with the foundation, the house of this man's life is built on the rock. I hail from Macon, Georgia. And in Macon, there's a, a house called the Hay House. There have been three different families that have lived there since it was built in 1855. A man built it for his wife, who they had honeymooned in, uh, in Italy. And he came back and he built one of the South's largest and most beautiful Italian Renaissance homes. You should go and see it sometime. It's really quite remarkable. Multi-storied, really solid. The other day, a windstorm came through Macon, and it blew through some of the ancient glass that's been there since at least 1859. Beautiful glass. But let me tell you, the house may be weather-beaten. The glass may have been blown in, but the house is there. Because it is built on a solid foundation. And so for us, the winds will come, the floods will rise, Christians will experience pain and sorrow and surprising providences, things that you would never have imagined would happen in your life will happen. In God's providence, you will experience temptations, death, All the way to the judgment seat of Christ on the last day. But this first builder's house is built on Christ. His house will last because it is built on the firm foundation. Now again, there's nothing esoteric here. There's nothing difficult to understand. The question that arises is, is my house built on the solid foundation of Christ? Will my house withstand the storms when they come? Am I prepared for the day of judgment? But now in contrast, the one who hears, but not really, because he does not do the word, is like, look at verse 49, will you? But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell, and the ruin of that house was great. This builder does not take care upon what he builds. Matthew says he built upon sand. Sand. He does not think about the future. He does not think about the judgment to come. Let tomorrow take care of itself. I'm just seeing this beautiful house that I'm building. That's all I care about. Now, does this man listen to Christ? Well, superficially. He may be able to quote scripture, but it has never changed his heart fundamentally. His heart shows because he does not obey the Lord And so what happens to the house of this man's life when the storm comes? The stream broke against it. Immediately it fell. And the ruin of that house was great. His house was completely ruined. And why? Because he did not take care to build on the firm foundation who is Christ. Now, house here, of course, you realize means people. It's talking about us. People that do not build on the foundation of Christ but build on the sand will not stand ultimately in the day of judgment. And so he says, ruin comes in verse 49. The word regma that is used in the Greek New Testament here can mean ruin, it can mean wreck, it also can mean collapse, collapse. Your house will collapse when the storm comes if it is not built upon the foundation who is Christ. So does anyone here see a call to repentance for your heart? Is anyone here beginning to realize that your, your house, the house of your life, is not built to withstand the storm when it comes? Certainly not the judgment when it comes, and it will come. And you know it will come. Eternity is written on your heart. Now, no one is excluded here. There are not those that can say, well, this doesn't apply to me. Every person is a builder, no one is excluded, there are only two kinds of builders, there are only two kinds of foundations, there are those two kinds of lives, and only two. The house of everyone's life will be tested. There will be financial trouble, illness, stress, trials in marriage, disappointments in life, grief, and supremely, death. Death. The difference between the believer and unbeliever is not a difference in testing. It is not a difference in the kinds of trouble that comes. The believer and the unbeliever have the same sorts of tests, the same sorts of trials, the same sorts of troubles. The difference is in the outcome. There are only two possible outcomes. No one can escape the day of judgment that is coming. And so, will your hymn on that day be... On Christ, the solid rock, I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. Or will your hymn be a lament with words something like, The ruin of my house is great. Which will it be? Which leads me, thirdly, to this. Self-deception. Self-deception. Now, my intention is not to shake the confidence of those who know Christ but to follow the text in addressing the presumptuous. Not everyone who thinks that he will be saved will be saved. Again, verse 46, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? You cannot fool the judge whose eye searches the heart. The self-deceived in this text here on one level Christ's word, but the, the heart to do God's word is just not there showing that they do not know the Christ of the word. Both bore fruit, both built houses, but how different the fruit and ultimately how different the houses. In what ways then may sinners be self-deceived today? How may sinners be deceived into thinking that they are saved when indeed they are lost? Let me give you several ways. One way in which a person may be self-deceived is by reliance upon intellectual assent to the truth. Now, intellectual assent to the truth is necessary. It is extraordinarily important. I think one of the great problems of the church today is that the church, by and large, is not giving enough attention to the intellectual content of the Scriptures and of the Gospel. But it is not sufficient to save. In James 2... And I remember my pastor saying this when I was a a young person, just as many of you young people will hear it from your pastor this morning, quoting James 2, 19. You believe that God is one? You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Now think about it. The demons believe in the Trinity. The demons believe that Jesus is God. They believe in the incarnation. They believe that he went to a cross to save sinners. They believe he rose from the dead. They believe all of these things... They are eminently orthodox, but they believe and shudder. And it's possible for you to believe all of those things and to say, I know that those things are true and yet not know the Lord. But connected to that, another way that a person can be deceived is by basing salvation upon religious experience. I did not say that experience was unimportant, but experience can never be the foundation of your faith. Because emotions are very deceptive things. Faith clings to the promise of God despite changing feelings and despite the circumstances of life. But then another way in which a person can be deceived is by dependence upon zeal in the Lord's service. Or even the use of his gifts in the service of his church. Keep your marker here and let's turn to Matthew on this. In Matthew 7 verse 21 which is this portion of the Sermon on the Mount, as told in Matthew. It's a, a longer account in Matthew. Just before this section on building the house, right after the tree and its fruit, there is this. Matthew seven twenty one. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty, many mighty wonders in your name, works in your name? And then will I declare to him, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Now wait, this is the person who has the gift To speak, to preach, to teach, even cast out demons. To do all of these things and to do it in the name of the Lord. But they never knew the Lord. And on that day, they will hear, depart from me, I never knew you. They were very busy. Martin Lloyd-Jones somewhere says, to be over busy is one of the high roads to self-deception. Personal morality someone says well I'm a good person you don't know your own heart you've not contrasted yourself with the holiness of God you've not seen your need don't you know more than you practice don't you commit sin don't you omit what is right is your obedience perfect can a holy God demand anything less than perfect obedience can any of us perfectly obey no we're all lost in need of grace and the person who hears but does not do is lost, but the person who does and trusts what he does rather than Christ is also lost. There is only one ground of assurance, and that is Christ himself who died for sinners. And a characteristic of false assurance, if someone is shutting it out that really needs to examine your heart, let me underscore that a characteristic of false assurance is an unwillingness to examine oneself and to bring his life under the authority and into conformity with the Word of God. Are there other characteristics of those who are self-deceived? Yes. Another characteristic is one may desire salvation because it delivers from hell, but not because of love, the love of God in Christ. Now, it's a fool that doesn't want to be delivered from hell. But if there is a person who says, I'm saved only because I'm delivered from hell, then he's lost. Because he knows nothing of the love of God shown in Christ. One who is deceived. And only the Spirit of God can teach this. You know the old hymn, a sinner is a sacred thing, the Holy Ghost has made him so? That is, the Holy Spirit only can show us our need. One who is deceived has never seen the heinous nature of sin. He has never repented. I mean, there has never been a radical break with sin. And he makes a supposed personal righteousness the basis of his acceptance rather than the righteousness of Christ because he doesn't understand that it requires a perfect righteousness imputed to his account received by faith in order to be accepted by God. Let me give you one other characteristic that I think perhaps in evangelical churches we need to pay a lot of attention to. A person who just goes after the exciting rather than the solid and the substantive may be a lost person. He's concerned with entertainment rather than real worship. In Luke 10, 17 through 20, just a couple of pages over, Luke 10, 17 through 20, the Lord Jesus says, the 72 return with joy saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I've given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Hey, that's pretty exciting, isn't it? Even the demons are obeying them. But he says in verse 20, Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Self-deception is the easiest thing in the world. Because to be self-deceived, you never have to face God's holiness, and you never have to face your sin. Not in this life. But what is the chief characteristic of a true believer? Well, the text makes it plain. The chief characteristic of a true believer is that he bears good fruit, or that he obeys the word. This is not the ground. Christ only is the ground, the foundation, but it is an evidence. And the Sermon on the Mount is all about the everyday, ongoing obedience of disciples. You are not saved because of your obedience, but every saved person wants to grow in obedience where God's grace is truly in the life and in the heart of a sinner, the result will be a growing obedience to the Word of God. Let me be plain. The text is not saying to us, well, I'm not obeying, and so I'd better get busy obeying, start obeying, so that I will be saved. That's not what the text is saying. No. The text in light of all of God's Word is saying... When I stop trusting in things other than Christ, when I stop relying on myself, when I trust Christ alone for salvation, when I trust Christ's obedience and sacrifice alone for my redemption, then the Holy Spirit within me will produce a desire to obey. The fruit comes from a heart that knows savingly Jesus Christ. And so you do not rest on your own obedience, but obedience is a consequence of grace. Let me read to you the words of J.C. Ryle. J.C. Ryle was a strong evangelical bishop, Anglican bishop in the 19th century whose ministry was tremendously blessed. Listen. Let it be a settled principle in our religion that when a man brings forth no fruits of the Spirit, he has not the Holy Spirit within him. Let us resist as a deadly error the common idea that all baptized people are born again and that all members of the church, as a matter of course, have the Holy Spirit. One simple question must be our rule. What fruit does a man bring forth? Does he repent? Does he believe with the heart on Jesus? Does he live a holy life? Does he overcome the world? habits like these are what scripture calls fruit. When these fruits are lacking, it is profane to talk of a man having the spirit of God within him. Let it be a settled principle again in our religion that when a man's general conversation, that means manner of life, when a man's general conversation is ungodly, his heart is graceless and unconverted. Let us not give way to the vulgar notion that no one can know anything of the state of another's heart, and that although men are living wickedly, they have got good hearts at the bottom. Such notions are flatly contradictory to our Lord's teaching. Is the general tone of a man's communication carnal, worldly, irreligious, godless, or profane? Then let us understand that this is the state of his heart. When a man's tongue is generally wrong, it is absurd, no less than unscriptural, to say that his heart is right. And so here is the solemn inquiry. Use it for the trial of our own state before God. What fruit are we bringing forth in our lives? Are they or are they not fruit of the Spirit? What kind of evidence do our words supply as to the state of our hearts? Do we talk like men whose hearts are right in the sight of God? There is no evading the doctrine laid down by our Lord. Conduct is the grand test of character. Words are one great symptom of the condition of the heart. Fourth point, final point. The self deceived on the day of judgment. Verse 49 When the stream broke against the house, immediately it fell, and the ruin of that house was great. People may deceive themselves, but God will never be deceived. And Matthew 7 puts this in the context of the judgment. Right before this, he says, Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. So you can have all of the experiences in the world. I heard one preacher say, You can sway back and forth until you're purple in the face in a worship service. You can really get into it, you can have zeal, you can have impression. You can have past experiences. You can have responded to an invitation down a church aisle. You can have status in the church, correct belief, as needful as that is. Years of service. But none of these can be the foundation of your eternal hope. Do you hear? Those things will be present to varying degrees in true believers. But they are not the foundation And if you trust anyone or anything other than Christ alone for your salvation, you will be let down and let down hard. The ruin of your house will be great. And so we sing, Jesus, thy blood and righteousness, my beauty are my glorious dress. Or are we sing, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. And if you hear in your soul Jesus say, come unto me, you will never hear him say, depart from me. Have you noticed as we have worked our way Thus far through Luke and this section, the Sermon on the Mount. Have you noticed the amazing, astounding authority of Jesus? J. Gresham Machen commenting on the authority of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. And Matthew says that here we have a strange note of authority which would be overwrought and pathological in any other person than the Jesus of the Bible. Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount that he is the Lord. Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount that he is the judge. Jesus is terribly in earnest. And the Sermon on the Mount does not teach that it is an indifferent matter how we relate to Jesus. The Sermon on the Mount and all of God's Word teaches that the final destiny of men is in the hands of Jesus. And He is the object of faith. He is the Lord of our lives. And so coming to the end of this passage, I call upon every one of us, look to the cross, look to His sacrifice, look to the cross, to His shed blood, and there see the judgment of God poured out in the place of every sinner who believes in Christ. By faith, receive Christ. By faith, dig your foundation deep in the bedrock of the person and work of Jesus Christ. And God's people said, Amen.